Hi, and welcome to the Delivery Manager Daily Podcast, where I, your host, Mario De Cristofano, will talk to you about life as a delivery manager. We'll talk about strategy, tactics, things to do, not to do, and wrap all that up in a way which makes sense. This is an attempt at a daily series of podcasts which are released across wherever you get your podcasts from, and an occasional YouTube video version with bonus content, should you want that. If you want to get in touch or get involved with the podcast, or maybe even be a sponsor, get in touch via Twitter at DM underscore daily, or check out the blog, mariosblog.co.uk. Hello and welcome to episode, oh, I don't know, <laughs> of the Delivery Managed Daily. I'm your host Mario De Cristofano, and I think it's episode 27 or 28, I'm not sure. Clearly these aren't daily and this is a problem but uh, today we're talking about project discovery so we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, thanks for listening those that have listened over the past sort of 20 odd episodes and the feedback and I've used this as a bit of a cathartic platform to talk about my own experience and share lessons and learnings and also had uh, the opportunity to talk to others too um, I'm wanting to keep going with this um, I've got a bit of a cold at the minute so my voice might sound a bit raspy this is the second attempt at recording this particular episode of the podcast did it earlier today uh, for whatever reason uh, forgot to use my pop shield so it was very poppy um hopefully uh, that won't be the case on this take two but thanks for listening um so we're talking about project discoveries and the reason to do them and i'm talking about this off the back of just doing a fully remote one of my first fully remote discoveries actually um so we're not talking about kind of um for those that that aren't familiar with the term um, we're not talking about a disco the kind of thing that you go to dance in on a Friday night, are they still called discos or am I showing my age? We're talking about project discoveries. This is the discovery phase, information gathering. You may have heard it called other things, but obviously, um, you know, I talk about it from its uh, an agile perspective, I guess, and a discovery is a core part of that. Uh, hypothesis driven sort of validation measure twice cut once approach and it's really important that if you can and you've got the opportunity to do so that you factor a portion of time into the project um, to do a discovery phase if you're working in the public sector it is a recognized valid step in sort of user-centered design validating uh, the the problem that you're trying to solve using discovery Um, and in a lot of other projects it's often treated as a luxury So clients will invariably come to you, a vendor or a consultant, with a full understanding as they think of the thing that they want, whether it's a product or a service, and they are obviously experts in their vertical and their market. They very rarely will pay to validate that assumption or the assumptions that they've made. And the problem by not running a discovery to validate that information is you often get something that doesn't work, isn't quite right, your customers or users won't use. So it is that measure twice, cut once approach that from a project perspective, if you can factor it in regardless of what it's called, um, it's it's a really good thing to do. So in this podcast, I'm going to talk you through some of the reasons why it's really important phase of the project, some of the tools that I use, how I approach it, and my experience of this particular recent discovery um, that went well, but it was it was pretty much fully remote. So just on that notion then of of being fully remote, usually a discovery phase, or I like to make sure discovery phases are quite experiential. So you get everyone into a room over two, three or four days. It's probably a bit of a similar setup to uh, product uh, 
increment planning where you get everyone together to discuss the next kind of increment of work. Um, you know, get the pastries, the post-it notes, the whiteboards, the pens, and just make it a bit of a thing, a bit of an event. I think it's really important to bring people together to share a common understanding of the problem that's trying to be solved. And doing that not only has this kind of bringing the team together, but also kind of ensures that everyone's on the same page from the start. We know that projects go awry through misunderstanding and communication silos. So a good discovery is an opportunity to um, sort of bring people together. So the more complex the thing being done, the more important the discovery phase. So uh, a quick anecdote. Um, so a little bit about me and my approach to stuff is often I will rush something to get that dopamine hit at the end that says that I've done it, I've completed the thing. Now what I've learned over time and experience is that actually preparation is probably 70% of the thing rather than the actual thing itself you know you're spending 70 percent of your time doing the preparation and that's not something i've always been good at and it's only something you know if i look around my office now and look at all the half jobs that i've done in terms of the decoration or the shelves that i've put up or something i know that i've had to go back and do those again to do them right and it's the the thing you know i talk about painting in particular um i used to remember my dad when i was a kid and i'd watch him wash the walls and he'd hoover the walls, he'd wait for them to dry, he'd plaster in all the imperfections, skim the wall, then re-clean it with a cloth, let it dry, hoover out all the crevices around the skirting boards and the cornices, and then, only then, would he start to paint. And I used to, you know, I used to help him and invariably spill paint all over the floor, but... Um, I used to think to myself, why don't you just get on and do the painting? And and invariably, you know, he'd paint he'd paint a room and it would be immaculate. And I remember the first time that I painted a wall and it was a fairly sort of standard magnolia wall and I didn't really clean clean the wall or do any prep. I just got the paint, slapped the paint on and wondered why it wasn't perfect. And and I learned a real lesson you know, in that preparation is really important to get better results. And the discovery phase is an important part of that to, um, oh, I realised why there was a lot of popping in the first take of this podcast, because I'm using a lot of bees. Um, but it's a really good opportunity to make sure that, um, it's this measure twice cut once, that you're validating what you're doing. Um, so, the more complex a thing you're doing, the more important the discovery phase is. So um, you'll be expected to kind of, you know, if you're working in a consultancy firm and you're doing a discovery, you're going to have to listen to what the client's saying. In our case, the client provided us with a ton of information that we pre-read pretty quickly to get a quick snapshot of the landscape, the technology that they were using, the environments, the infrastructure. We started to look at the processes across all areas of the business. And using a combination of kind of quantitative and qualitative information that we established through a range of kind of sessions that we did over Zoom or Teams calls, which I'll talk about in a minute, we started to build this picture up of the the, the organisation and some of its problems and pain points and also what we were there to, to kind of um, do. Often discoveries aren't done because they're seen as a luxury and typically, you know, stakeholders, the contract signed, people are pretty excited to just get going and think that they know enough just to get going and they work everything out later on and that can really be a costly mistake so a couple of things about discoveries that that is worth sort of thinking about as you structure one um you can probably split a discovery into 25 percent equal blocks 
down into user research, business outcomes, value proposition and kind of the broader context. And I talk about this with my recent discovery kind of in, in the back of my mind. So let's talk about user research. Everything should be centered around understanding the problem you're trying to solve and why. In this particular case for our client, it was very much a, a range of kind of operational uh, organizational issues across people, process and technology, but also there was a product element to it as well. So we needed to think about end users. So in the discovery, we set these sessions up over over teams and work with the stakeholders to kind of understand getting the, the right people together over a call to start thinking about the users and challenging the client to say, you know, are you sure this is the problem you're trying to solve? And actually, have we asked the users of the things that they want? So that user research is, is really important, especially if you're building a digital product that that's going to end up in the hands of people. But even if you're building out a, a service, um, it's important to know what the users are expecting or some of the challenges that the users are facing. So another 25% on on kind of the, the business outcomes. Often there'll be a bit of a delta between what is actually needed and what is being asked for by the client. And the job, it, one of the many jobs of the discovery phase is to kind of validate where that delta is and try and understand what the gap is and, and trying to fill it. So... Um, it's really important to ask the question why, right? So why are we doing this? Why do we think that the users or customers want this? Why should we do this? Is there another way to kind of do it? But I also like to ask what. So what are the goals? What are the success measures? And how will we know when we're done? So those business outcomes are really important to establish as part of the discovery phase too. Then we move on to the value proposition. It's often massively overlooked. Stakeholders are often laser focused on kind of the objectives, the KPIs. Nobody really stops to think about the value of the thing being built or done actually provides. So if we're solving a problem, can we articulate what the problem is? What is the problem that needs to be solved? Has that been validated through kind of hypothesis driven experimentation? And that ties massively into kind of decent user research too. There is a uh, um, uh, well, how can I say there is a skill to make sure that the discovery process certainly when it comes to user-centered design and problem solving doesn't go too deep there is never an end to user-centered design thinking and I've worked with many user design specialists and product specialists as they've been a part of a project that I've been involved with and obviously as a delivery manager we're keen and focused on is it done yet is it done yet how long is it going to be so we can apply a cost and a, a time scale to that if you leave the fantastic people that do this stuff to their own devices often they'll go into levels of detail with no end and obviously even though the the nature of hypothesis driven experimentation never does end by its very nature the commercial lens is that we've got to draw a line at some point so as a delivery manager it's important that you don't go too deep and we're all clear on what the goal is of the discovery uh, component so you want to bear that in mind if you're a delivery manager of where to draw the line of when do we know we're done or we've learned enough or that's okay and then the last 25% is the broader context, I guess. So not doing anything in isolation, looking at what you're doing in relation to the market or peers or competitors and what they've done, the challenges that they've faced, looking at their kind of costs and their users. That broader information often provides a useful narrative to kind of back up and validate what you're doing. So you should really think about that. So as part of our discovery, looking at competitors and their products and services, for example. So that's kind of the discovery in a nutshell and it's obviously done differently if you're in person but this was a challenge for us because <clears throat> with the hybrid working model 
we were doing a lot of these remote. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to work with the client and get a cadence of workshop set up that I was almost treating as mini events. So they weren't just meetings in someone's calendar. What we wanted to do was to frame the session in terms of what we wanted to get out of it. So things like the subject line very clearly conveyed the purpose of that session and that helped drive the right people attending. We wanted to make sure that everyone felt comfortable uh, on each session. So we did a couple of things and, and, you know, actually I say we, you know, the team that I was fortunate enough to work with did a great job really and did all the heavy lifting. The stuff I'm talking about is just the stuff kind of around the edges that bring it all together. Um, We set a very clear agenda in terms of why we were asking the things that we were asking and what we were hoping to learn. And to make sure that during each session, we were clear on that so people knew what they needed to contribute. And we also um, played back fairly regularly too, so in a kind of consultant style. So let me just stop you there. So we've heard and, and listened and we think that you've said this. Is that the case? And that validation by playing back not only shows that you're taking the the care and attention to listen properly um but that you understand what's being said and i think it's really important to yeah take people's time seriously because invariably organizations don't have time to sit on the phone for hours on end with consultants and talk about stuff that is just their day-to-day bread and butter and it's also important that you don't repeat yourself so if you go through a session and you've collected and collated the information don't ask those questions again because it just demonstrates that you haven't listened in the first place and that really is a waste of people's time. I just want to take this opportunity to let you know that I do have a small web and app company that I run on the side to my day-to-day job. I build websites, small applications and you can get in touch with me if you want a website built, maybe you want to start a new business or a side hustle or you need to talk to someone for some advice I'm not sure where to go. Get in touch with me at creativepixel.me.uk quote the podcast, DM daily you'll get a 10% discount on any work that you uh, have done with me so check it out so we had this cadence of, of kind of remote workshops that were that were staffed by um, both the client and us. And just to talk about some of the roles, we don't underestimate the importance of needing a good MC, the front man of a band, a facilitator, someone that can drive the meeting forward to make sure that we, people don't meander into unnecessary levels of detail, someone that can keep the session on time, on the subject of time. Typically, I find that people have the cognitive effort, the cognitive capacity to kind of maintain effort for about 30, 40 minutes. People say they can do longer. Very often they can't. So all of these sessions were quite short, anywhere between an hour, somewhere a little longer. They invariably kind of split. But generally speaking, you want someone that can help drive the meeting forward to make sure that the core um, value of, of the meeting, the output was achieved rather than a meandering conversation that just ultimately might be a pleasant conversation but can often waste people's time. We also made sure that we took um, adequate notes and we did that in a couple of ways. When I talk about tooling, I'll talk about how we did that. But it was important that after each session that we circulated those notes as well. What we found was some feedback was it was holding a mirror up against the organisation and people were learning things about the organisation that they didn't know or that another department did that they didn't know about or people that were new into the organisation that were involved in the discovery phase were learning. It was almost onboarding for them. So the tighter that you can run this, and make it as pleasant an experience as possible, um, the better for everyone. The other thing we did at the start was we quite openly, we got everyone together on an all hands and um, 
introduced ourselves and talked about why we were doing what we were doing and the fact that we'd ask questions and what we looked to get out of it and what we were trying to learn, not just in each individual session in silo, but we explained to everyone the overarching picture that we were trying to form, a bit like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. We explained that we would often stick to an agenda and we didn't want it to feel like a bit of a Q&A interrogation. We know from experience outsiders coming into an organisation asking these what can often be probing questions. People can feel a bit defensive or they're not sure what to say or what they can share or they worry about their job or, you know, who's this consultant coming in asking me about this process? So we wanted to make sure that everyone understood what we were there to do and the team very kind of delicately orchestrated the conversation to make sure that we got what we needed to build the picture but ultimately we made sure that everyone knew the why we were doing what we were doing it also covered us for when you get those invariably janky situations where it does feel like a bit of an interrogative q a and you know you're going through a list of questions for example it's not always free-flowing because the stakeholders don't often know what they need to provide in terms of information so it puts a huge amount on the discovery team to make sure that they can almost take everyone on a journey and make them feel afterwards that they've contributed something of value. So we did about 20 or 37, 30 sessions. Was it 20 or was it closer to 20 or closer to 30? It was probably about in the middle, about 25 sessions over the course of a couple of weeks. Really rapid, short, really well facilitated, tightly coordinated to make sure that we had adequate people, the right subject matter experts in the room. A lot of this is down to the client too. So when you're running a discovery yourself as a delivery manager, you know, do consider the character types of the people that you're speaking to. Try and do some analysis over the characters. You'll have some people that want to talk in levels of detail, especially when we're talking about technology. You're going to get senior stakeholders that have their own specific lens of the business and the problem and will talk with authority about a particular thing, but not necessarily recognise some of the nuances in the weeds. You're going to get people that are quite shy and restricted in the way that they talk and are not really sure on how to or what to communicate and everyone in between. And it's important to recognise those character types so you can fine tune and throttle the way that you do the discovery and also the the different types of characters within each session to make sure that you don't get someone that's very loud and opinionated overshadowing those that have acres of knowledge but don't get an opportunity to talk. So that orchestration needs to be done as you set out these sessions. And I found for a remote disco was quite a challenge to to kind of get all of that thought about. But we did it with the client's help and it was really uh, pivotal in making sure that we were getting the information extracted as quickly as possible. So that then moves me on to tooling, some of the tools that we used. In fact, some of the tools, one of the tools I'll mention, you'll hear me talk about all the time. But considering we were on the phone doing a remote call over in this case Microsoft Teams there are a couple of things that we wanted to leverage and I decided to leverage using Microsoft Teams firstly we wanted everyone to be able to bypass the lobby so when we were sending session details out we'd go into the meeting options and make sure that the bypass lobby toggle switch for everyone was switched so no one was stuck in a lobby in case the meeting organizer didn't turn up and that worked pretty well We also, with permission, um, set auto-record to on. So in Microsoft Teams, it will auto-record the call, which is really useful, saves it to streams, and then you can download it, which we circulated after. Now, a little bit of hindsight, 
when you've done those 25 sessions and you've recorded them all, you've got a fair few hours worth of video that realistically you're not going to look back on. So you do still need to make notes. And this moves me on to another role in the discovery phase is don't underestimate the importance of a good note taker that can not only take notes quickly, but also understands context, nuance and can write in a way that makes sense when you go back to those notes in two or three hours later or even two or three days later. Now, the tooling that we use and that I use uh, helps with that. The first is Miro. So Miro is a tool that you hear me go on about all the time and others on the market are available. But I use Miro pretty extensively for everything. And it's a visual collaboration and whiteboard software that comes with a range of features from pre-built templates to let you do certain types of things like retrospectives or discoveries or everything in between. You use virtual sticky notes. It has a timing function. It's really good for collaboration and visually it's quite pleasing to share your screen on a call and all swarm around and that's quite a nice experience for people that it gets people to think visually and understand kind of what's being said and note take taken what notes are being taken um but also when you come back to those notes by structuring them visually they're more likely to make sense in a few hours or a few days time so you can look back and that will trigger context and a memory to think oh right i wrote that on a post-it note because that Miro board becomes a central asset for that discovery phase and allows you to to add multimedia to it, whether that's snippets of Word documents or PDFs or stuff that the client had shared with us too, along with our own kind of ad hoc notes. So Miro is an absolute integral tool to a good remote discovery. But we talked about note-taking too, and I rely on a, a tool called otter.ai. So again... Um, there are other tools that do similar things. In fact, Microsoft Teams will, if you record the session, attempt to automatically transcribe it. I use Otter AI as an independent cloud-based tool. So it's a piece of middleware that sits in between your microphone speaker and your video conferencing app. And what it does is it processes the the, the, the communication in the cloud, provides a, a transcript that's searchable. So it's really effective. It runs the workload in the cloud. So if you've got a fairly ropey laptop and you're running Microsoft Teams in particular, uh, you don't need me to tell you that running Teams and trying to get it to just hold the call together is a feat in itself. So if you're recording it as well, and then maybe you're using the internal whiteboard feature of Teams because that also has a whiteboard feature and, you, and you're having it transcribed all in real time along with taking notes, sharing your screen, that can be quite a big workload for the computer and also to do all that in a single application. So I often offload note-taking to otter.ai. The conversation around security and the fact that it sends it to the cloud to process before sending the, the content back to you is outside the scope of this call. But often for me, Otter AI is a useful tool to allow that transcript and then those searchable transcripts can be paired with the video recording so you don't have to go through the video it's also super accurate uses artificial intelligence to get more accurate over time too and it has various tiers of pricing from free to about 20 pound a month so it's not the most expensive tool obviously you'll need to deal with security it and client permission but generally speaking i think miro and otter are a great pairing when it comes to doing remote visual discoveries so they're the tools we used, uh, and, and that allowed us to create this 360 picture with assets and collateral that then allowed us to look back and make decisions based on that, and it was all fairly, um, fairly seamless. 
one of the last things I wanted to talk about though was you know preparing the audience and we've talked about that just earlier just make sure that you know you remind yourself that people are people they're humans and you know it can be quite a challenge to sit on the phone or on a video call with someone that you don't know and answer fairly intimate questions about your business or a process or your IT estate the classic case in point and I've gone through this for decades in my career um, for decades, yeah, at least two decades, because I've been doing what I do for 20 years. Um, IT and IT people. And obviously, if you as a consultant go in with a what is often an overstretched IT team or overstretched IT people, and you're grilling them about their infrastructure or talking to them about their estate, often you might be doing that on a call in front of their colleagues or peers or superiors. You might be finding issues technology problems or decisions that have been made that you're questioning you've you've really got to be sort of sympathetic and empathetic and sensitive to the way to which you gather that information um and throughout the years you know the amount of disgruntled it teams that have just clammed up and not provided any information during a discovery phase because they just feel that either their jobs are on the line and no matter how you convince them that's not the case and that's not what you're there for they just don't give you anything at all um so you've really got to kind of be sensitive to the audience and make sure that they're absolutely clear on the purpose of you know why you're doing what you're doing and i think for us and and my experience on what is my first kind of fully remote discovery um i think it went pretty well um you know as i said massive thanks to the team that actually did most of the hard work but in short um i just thought i'd talk about it on this podcast and kind of think about some of the things that went right, some of the things not so much, and what some of the things that I'd, I'd maybe do again. So hopefully that's been useful for you, but just to summarise. So we talked at the start of why to do a discovery, and often people pay lip service to the notion of wanting to do this diligence because it can be expensive. If you're building out a product or a complex service, it's really important to understand the problem that you're trying to solve, and a discovery will help do that. We talked about splitting the disco into equal 25% chunks split across user research, understanding and validating business outcomes uh, using hypothesis uh, driven experimentation to validate the thing that you're doing. We talked about value proposition and making sure that you understood the value of completing the thing that you were asked to do. What would that do in terms of adding value and the broader context to understanding similar uh products or services or competitors and what they're doing to kind of bring a level of um, detail and uh, resolution into your own discovery phase. We talked about the importance just generally of user research and whilst you shouldn't go into too much detail you should at least draw a line understanding what problem you're trying to fix and looking at it from a user perspective is massively important. We talked about tooling more recently to the back end of this podcast. So we've just talked about Miro and using tools like Otter to transcribe your notes. And we talked about just making sure that your audience is prepped too, making sure that people understand why you're asking the questions you're asking, um, accommodating the the kind of it's not a Q&A interrogation and actually taking them on a bit of a journey so they understand why the information they're provided is being asked for 
and what that will contribute to in terms of something in the future. So that's kind of my initial thoughts on a remote disco. I'm sure you've run some yourself and, and it'd be really good to hear your thoughts on, on discos that you've run recently. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's DM underscore daily. Um, I've also wrote about this on my blog, mariasblog.co.uk. It'll be the most recent post, but if you search for Discovery, you'll find it. And of course, if you want to get involved on the podcast too, you can just drop me a tweet or find me on social media and it'd be good to get uh, involved and get people on talking about this stuff. So that is episode, oh, I don't know, 27 or something. I promise I will get better on the next episode with knowing what episode we're actually on. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Have a great day. This episode sponsored by ND Technology Services for IT consultancy and digital delivery projects and Creative Pixel if you want an affordable bespoke website which won't break the bank, get in touch. creativepixel.me.uk forward slash DM daily for a 10% discount on all websites.